food is inherently healthier than light food, or that most of the nutrients are found in the peel or crust. The sandwiches of those weekend stays were made with the saved ends of pumpernickel loaves. She taught us that animals that are bigger than you are very good for you. Animals that are smaller than you are good for you. Fish, which aren't animals, are fine for you. Then tuna, which aren't fish. Then vegetables, fruits, cakes, cookies, and sodas. No foods are bad for you. Fats are healthy. All fats, always, in any quantity. Sugars are very healthy. The fatter a child is, the healthier it is, especially if it's a boy. Lunch is not one meal, but three, to be eaten at 11, 12.30, and 3. You are always starving. In fact, her chicken and carrots probably was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. But that had little to do with how it was prepared, or even how it tasted. Her food was delicious, because we believed it was delicious. We believed in our grandmother's cooking more fervently than we believed in God. Her culinary prowess was one of our family's primal stories, like the cunning of the grandfather I never met, or the single fight of my parents' marriage. We clung to those stories and depended on them to define us. We were the family that chose its battles wisely and used wit to get out of binds, and loved the food of our matriarch. Once upon a time, there was a person whose life was so good, there was no story to tell about it. More stories could be told about my grandmother than about anyone else I've ever met. Her otherworldly childhood, the hairline margin of her survival, the totality of her loss her immigration and further loss, the triumph and tragedy of her assimilation. And though I will one day try to tell them to my children, we almost never told them to one another. Nor did we call her by any of the obvious and earned titles. We called her the greatest chef. Perhaps her other stories were too difficult to tell. Or perhaps she chose her story for herself, wanting to be identified by her providing rather than her surviving. Or perhaps her surviving is contained within her providing. The story of her relationship to food holds all of the other stories that could be told about her. Food, for her, is not food. It is terror, dignity, Gratitude, vengeance, joyfulness, humiliation, religion, history, and, of course, love. As if the fruits she always offered us were picked from the destroyed branches of our family tree. Possible Again Unexpected impulses struck when I found out I was going to be a father. I began tidying up the house, 
replacing long-dead light bulbs, wiping windows and filing papers. I had my glasses adjusted, bought a dozen pairs of white socks, installed a roof rack on top of the car, and a dog-slash-cargo divider in the back. Had my first physical in half a decade, and decided to write a book about eating animals. Fatherhood was the immediate impetus for the journey that would become this book. But I'd been packing my bags for most of my life. When I was two, the heroes of all of my bedtime stories were animals. When I was four, we fostered a cousin's dog for a summer. I kicked it. My father told me we don't kick animals. When I was seven, I mourned the death of my goldfish. I learned that my father...